Book One, Chapter Five of Robert Ellesmere, by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book One, Chapter Five. In his Oxford life, Robert surrendered himself to the best and most stimulating influences of the place, just as he had done at school. He was a youth of many friends, by virtue of a natural gift of sympathy, which was no doubt often abused and by no means invariably profitable to its owner, but wherein, at any rate, his power over his fellows, like the power of half the potent men in the world's history, always lay rooted. He had his mother's delight in living. He loved the cricket-field. He loved the river. His athletic instincts and his athletic friends were always fighting in him with his literary instincts and the friends who appealed primarily to the intellectual and moral side of him. He made many mistakes alike in friends and in pursuits. In the freshness of a young and roving curiosity, he had great difficulty in submitting himself to the intellectual routine of the university, a difficulty which ultimately cost him much. But at the bottom of the lad, all the time, there was a strength of will, a force and even tyranny of conscience, which kept his charm and pliancy from degenerating into weakness, and made it not only delightful, but profitable, to love him. He knew that his mother was bound up in him, and his being was set to satisfy, so far as he could, all her honourable ambitions. His many undergraduate friends, strong as their influence must have been in the aggregate on a nature so receptive, hardly concern us here. His future life, so far as we can see, was most noticeably affected by two men older than himself, and belonging to the Dons, both of them fellows and tutors of St Anselm's, though on different planes of age. The first one, Edward Langham, was Robert's tutor, and about seven years older than himself. He was a man about whom, on entering the college, Robert heard more than the usual crop of stories. The healthy young English barbarian has an aversion to the intrusion of more manner into life than is absolutely necessary. Now Langham was overburdened with manner, though it manner of the deprecating and not of the arrogant order. Decisions, it seemed, of all sorts, were abominable to him. To help a friend, he at once consented to be pro-proctor. He resigned in a month, and none of his acquaintances ever afterwards dared to allude to the experience. If you could have got at his inmost mind, it was affirmed, the persons most obnoxious there would have been found to be the scout, who intrusively asked him every morning what he would have for breakfast, and the college cook, who, till such a course was strictly forbidden him, mounted to his room at half-past nine to inquire whether he would dine in. Being a scholar of considerable eminence, it pleased him to assume on all questions an exasperating degree of ignorance, and the wags of the college averred that when asked if it rained, or if collections took place on such and such a day, it was pain and grief to him to have to affirm positively, without qualifications, that so it was. Such a man was not very likely, one would have thought, to captivate an ardent, impulsive boy like Ellesmere. Edward Langham, however, notwithstanding undergraduate tales, was a very remarkable person. In the first place he was possessed of exceptional personal beauty. His colouring was vividly black and white, closely curling jet-black hair, and fine black eyes contrasting with a pale, clear complexion and even white teeth. So far he had the characteristics which certain Irishmen share with most Spaniards. But the Celtic or Iberian brilliance was balanced by a classical delicacy and precision of feature. He had the brow, the nose, the upper lip, 
the finely moulded chin, which belonged to the more severe and spiritual Greek type. Certainly of Greek blitheness and directness there was no trace. The eye was wavering and profoundly melancholy. All the movements of the tall, finely built frame were hesitating and doubtful. It was as though the man were suffering from paralysis of some moral muscle or other, as if some of the normal springs of action in him had been profoundly and permanently weakened. He had a curious history. He was the only child of a doctor in a Lincolnshire country town. His old parents had brought him up in strict provincial ways, ignoring the boy's idiosyncrasies as much as possible. They did not want an exceptional and abnormal son, and they tried to put down his dreamy, self-conscious habits by forcing him into the common, middle-class, evangelical groove. As soon as he got to college, however, the brooding, gifted nature had a moment of sudden, and as it seemed to the old people in Gainsborough, most reprehensible expansion. Poems were sent to them, cut out of one or the other of the leading periodicals, with their son's initials appended, and articles of philosophical art criticism, published while the boy was still an undergraduate, which seemed to the stern father everything that was sophistical and subversive, for they treated Christianity itself as an open question, and showed especially scant respect for the Protestantism of the Protestant religion. The father warned him grimly that he was not going to spend his hard-earned savings on the support of a free-thinking scribbler, and the young man wrote no more, till just after he had taken a double first in greats. Then the publication of an article in one of the leading reviews on the ideals of modern culture not only brought him a furious letter from home, stopping all supplies, but also lost him a probable fellowship. His college was one of the narrowest and most backward in Oxford, and it was made perfectly plain to him before the fellowship examination that he would not be elected. He left the college, took pupils for a while, then stood for a vacant fellowship at St Anselm's, the Liberal headquarters, and got it with flying colours. Thenceforward one would have thought that a brilliant and favourable mental development was secured to him. Not at all. The moment of his quarrel with his father and his college had in fact represented a moment of energy, of comparative success, which never recurred. It was as though this outburst of action and liberty had disappointed him, as if some deep-rooted instinct, cold, critical, reflective, had reasserted itself, condemning him and his senses equally. The uselessness of utterance, the futility of enthusiasm, the inaccessibility of the ideal, the practical absurdity of trying to realise any of the mind's inward dreams, these were the kind of considerations which descended upon him, slowly and fatally, crushing down the newly springing growths of action or of passion. It was as though life had demonstrated to him the essential truth of a childish saying of his own which had startled and displeased his Calvinist mother years before. Mother, the delicate, large-eyed child, had said to her one day in a fit of physical weariness, how is it I dislike the things I dislike so much more than I like the things I like? So, he wrote no more, he quarrelled no more, he meddled with the great passionate things of life and expression no more. On his taking up residence, in St Anselm's indeed, and on his being appointed first lecturer and then tutor, he had a momentary pleasure in the thought of teaching. His mind was a storehouse of thought and fact and to the man brought up at a dull provincial day-school, and never allowed to associate freely with his kind, the bright lads, fresh from Eton and Harrow, about him, were singularly attractive. But a few terms were enough to scatter this illusion, too. 
He could not be simple. He could not be spontaneous. He was tormented by self-consciousness, and it was impossible to him to talk and behave as those talk and behave who had been brought up more or less in the big world from the beginning. So this dream, too, faded, for youth asks, before all things, simplicity and spontaneity and those who would take possession of it. His lectures, which were at first brilliant enough to attract numbers of men from other colleges, became gradually mere dry, ingenious skeletons, without life or feeling. It was possible to learn a great deal from him. It was not possible to catch from him any contagion of that amor intellectualis which had flamed at one moment so high within him. He ceased to compose. But as the intellectual faculty must have some employment, he became a translator, a contributor to dictionaries, a microscopic student of texts, not in the interest of anything beyond, but simply as a kind of mental stone-breaking. The only survival of that moment of glow and colour in his life was his love of music and the theatre. Almost every year he disappeared to France to haunt the Paris theatres for a fortnight, to Berlin or Bayreuth to drink his fill of music. He talked neither of music nor of acting. He made no one sharer of his enjoyment, if he did enjoy. It was simply his way of cheating his creative faculty, which, though it had grown impotent, was still there, still restless. Altogether a melancholy, pitiable man, a once thoroughgoing sceptic and thoroughgoing idealist, the victim of that critical sense which says no to every impulse, and is always restlessly, and yet hopelessly, seeking the future through the neglected and outraged present. And yet, the man's instincts, at this period of his life at any rate, were habitually kindly and affectionate. He knew nothing of women, and was not liked by them, but it was not his fault if he made no impression on the youth about him. It seemed to him that he was always seeking in their eyes and faces for some light of sympathy which was always escaping him, and which he was powerless to compel. He met it for the first time in Robert Ellesmere. The susceptible, poetical boy was struck at some favourable moment by that romantic side of the ineffective tutor, his silence, his melancholy, his personal beauty, which no one else, with perhaps one or two exceptions among the older men, cared to take into account, or, touched perhaps by some note in him, surprised in passing, of weariness or shrinking, as compared with the contemptuous turn of the college towards him. He showed his liking impetuously, boyishly, as his way was, and thenceforward during his university career Langham became his slave. He had no ambition for himself. His motto might have been that dismal one, The small things of life are odious to me, and the habit of them enslaves me. The great things of life are eternally attractive to me, and indolence and fear put them by. But for the university chances of this lanky, red-haired youth, with his eagerness, his boundless curiosity, his genius for all sorts of lovable mistakes, he disquieted himself greatly. He tried to discipline the roving mind, to infuse into the boy's literary temper the delicacy, the precision, the subtlety of his own. His fastidious, critical habits of work supplied exactly that antidote which Ellesmere's main faults of haste and carelessness required. He was always holding up before him the inexhaustible patience and labour involved in all true knowledge, and it was to the germs of critical judgment so implanted in him that Ellesmere owed many of the later growths of his development, growths with which we have not yet to concern ourselves. And in return, 
the tutor allowed himself rarely, very rarely, a moment of utterance from the depths of his real self. One evening in the summer term, following the boy's matriculation, Elsmere brought him an essay after hall, and they sat on talking afterwards. It was a rainy, cheerless evening. The first contest of the boats week had been rowed in cold wind and sleet. A dreary blast whistled through the college. Suddenly Langham reached out his hand for an open letter. "'I've had an offer, Elsmere,' he said abruptly, and he put it into his hand. It was the offer of an important Scotch professorship, coming from the man most influential in assigning it. The last occupant of the post had been a scholar of European eminence. Langham's contributions to a great foreign review, and certain Oxford recommendations, were the basis of the present overture, which, coming from one who was himself a classic of the classics, was couched in terms flattering to any young man's vanity. Robert looked up with a joyful exclamation when he had finished the letter. "'I congratulate you, sir.' "'I've refused it,' said Langham abruptly. His companion sat open-mouthed. Young as he was, he knew perfectly well that this particular appointment was one of the blue ribbons of British scholarship. "'Do you think,' said the other, in a tone of singular vibration, which had in it a note of almost contemptuous irritation, "'do you think I am the man to get and keep a hold on a rampageous class of hundreds of Scotch lads? Do you think I am the man to carry on what Reed began? Reed, that old fighter, that preacher of all sorts of jubilant dogmas?' He looked at Ellesmere under his straight black brows imperiously. The youth felt the nervous tension in the elder man's voice and manner, was startled by a confidence never before bestowed upon him, close as that unequal bond between them be growing during the six months of his Oxford life, and plucking up courage, hurled at him a number of frank young expostulations, which really put into friendly shape all that was being said about Langham in his college and in the university. Why was he so self-distrustful? so absurdly diffident of responsibility, so bent on hiding his great gifts under a bushel. The tutor smiled sadly, and, sitting down, buried his head in his hands, and said nothing for a while. Then he looked up and stretched out a hand towards a book which lay on a table near. It was the Reverie of Senecor. "'My answer is written here,' he said. "'It will seem to you now, Elsmere, mere midsummer madness.' May it always seem so to you. Forgive me. The pressure of solitude sometimes is too great. Elsmer looked up with one of his flashing, affectionate smiles, and took the book from Langan's hand. He found on the open page a marked passage. Oh, swiftly passing seasons of life! There was a time when men seemed to be sincere, when thought was nourished on friendship, kindness, love, when dawn still kept its brilliance and the night its peace. I can, the soul said to itself, and I will. I will do all that is right, all that is natural. But soon resistance, difficult, unforeseen, coming me know not whence, arrest us, undeceive us, and the human yoke grows heavy on our necks. Thenceforward we become merely sharers in the common woe. Hemmed in on all sides, we feel our faculties only to realise their impotence. We have time and strength to do what we must never what we will. Men go on repeating the words, work, genius, success. Fools! Would all these resounding projects, though they enable us to cheat ourselves, enable us to cheat the icy fate which rules us and our globe, wandering forsaken through the vast silence of the heavens?' 
Robert looked up, startled, the book dropping from his hand. The word sent a chill to the heart of one born to hope, to will, to crave. Suddenly Langham dashed the volume from him, almost with violence. "'Forget that drivel, Ellesmere. It was a crime to show it to you. It is not sane. Neither perhaps am I. But I am not going to Scotland. It would request me to resign in a week.' Long after Ellesmere, who had stayed talking a while on other things, had gone, Langham sat on brooding over the empty grate. "'Corrupter of youth!' he said to himself once, bitterly. And perhaps it was to a certain remorse in the tutor's mind that Ellesmere owed an experience of great importance to his after-life. The name of a certain Mr. Gray had for some time before his entry at Oxford been more or less familiar to Robert's ears as that of a person of great influence and consideration at St. Anselm's. His tutor at Harden had spoken of him in the boy's hearing as one of the most remarkable men of the generation, and had several times impressed upon his pupil that nothing could be so desirable for him as to secure the friendship of such a man. It was on the occasion of his first interview with the provost, after the scholarship examination, that Robert was first brought face to face with Mr. Gray. He could remember a short, dark man standing beside the provost, who had been introduced to him by that name, but the nervousness of the moment had been so great that the boy had been quite incapable of giving him any special attention. During his first term and a half of residence, Robert occasionally met Mr. Gray in the quadrangle or in the street, and the tutor, remembering the thin, bright-faced youth, would return his salutations kindly, and sometimes stop to speak to him, to ask him if he were comfortably settled in his rooms, or make a remark about the boats. But the acquaintance did not seem likely to progress, for Mr. Gray was a great tutor, and Robert naturally had nothing to do with him, as far as work was concerned. However, a day or two after the conversation we have described, Robert, going to Langham's rooms late in the afternoon to return a book which had been lent to him, perceived two figures standing talking on the hearthrug, and by the western light beating in, recognised the thick-set frame and broad brow of Mr. Gray. "'Come in, Ellesmere,' said Langham, as he stood hesitating on the threshold. "'You've met Mr. Gray before, I think.' "'We first met at an anxious moment,' said Mr. Gray, smiling and shaking hands with the boy. "'A first interview with the provost is always formidable. I remember it too well myself. You did very well, I remember, Mr. Ellesmere. Well, Langham, I must be off. I shall be late for my meeting as it is. I think we have settled our business. Good night.' Langham stood a moment after the door closed, eyeing young Ellesmere. There was a curious struggle going on in the tutor's mind. "'Ellesmere,' he said at last abruptly, would you like to go to-night and hear Gray preach?" "'Preach!' exclaimed the lad. "'I thought he was a layman.' "'Say he is. It will be a lay sermon. It was always the custom here with the clerical tutors to address their men once a term before Communion Sunday, and some years ago, when Gray first became tutor, he determined, though he was a layman, to carry on the practice. It was an extraordinary effort, for he is a man to whom words on such a subject are the coining of his heart's blood, and he has repeated it very rarely. It is two years now since his last address. "'Of course I should like to go,' said Robert, with eagerness. "'Is it open?' "'Strictly it is for his great pupils, but I can take you in. It is hardly meant for freshmen, but, well, you are far enough on to make it interesting to you.' "'The lad will take to Gray's influence like a fish to water,' thought the tutor to himself when he was alone, not without a strange reluctance. 
Well, no one can say I have not given him his opportunity to be earnest. The sarcasm of the last word was the kind of sarcasm which a man of his type in an earlier generation might have applied to the earnestness of an Arnoldian rugby. At eight o'clock that evening Robert found himself crossing the quadrangle with Langham on the way to one of the larger lecture-rooms, which was to be the scene of the address. The room, when they got in, was already nearly full. All the working fellows of the college were present, and a body of some thirty men besides, most of them already far on in their university career. A minute or two later Mr. Gray entered. The door opening on to the quadrangle, where the trees, undeterred by east wind, were just bursting into leaf, was shut, and the little assembly knelt, while Mr. Gray's voice, with its broad intonation, in which a strong native homeliness lingered under the gentleness of accent, recited the collect, Lord of all power and might. A silent pause following the last words. Then the audience settled itself, and Mr. Gray, standing by a small deal table with the gaslight behind him, began his address. All the main points of the experience which followed stamped themselves on Robert's mind with extraordinary intensity. Nor did he ever lose the memory of the outward scene. In after years memory could always recall to him at will the face and figure of the speaker, the massive head, the deep eyes sunk under the brows, the midland accent, the make of limb and feature which seemed to have some suggestion in them of the rude strength and simplicity of a peasant ancestry, and then the nobility, the fire, the spiritual beauty flashing through it all. Here indeed was a man on whom his fellows might lean, a man in whom the generation of spiritual force was so strong and continuous that it overflowed of necessity into the poorer, barrener lives around him, kindling and enriching. Robert felt himself seized and penetrated, filled with a fervour and an admiration which he was too young and immature to analyse, but which was to be none the less potent and lasting. Much of the sermon itself, indeed, was beyond him. It was on the meaning of St. Paul's great conception, death unto sin and a new birth unto righteousness. What did the Apostle mean by a death to sin and self? What were the precise ideas attached to the words, risen with Christ? Are this death and this resurrection necessarily dependent upon certain alleged historical events, or are they not primarily, and were they not, even in the mind of St. Paul, two aspects of a spiritual process perpetually re-enacted in the soul of man, and constituting the veritable revelation of God? Which is the stable and lasting witness of the Father, the spiritual history of the individual and the world, or the envelope of miracle to which hitherto mankind has attributed so much importance? Mr. Gray's treatment of these questions was clothed, throughout a large proportion of the lecture, in metaphysical language which no boy fresh from school, however intellectually quick, could be expected to follow with any precision. It was not therefore the argument, or the logical structure of the sermon, which so profoundly affected young Ellesmere. It was the speaker himself, and the occasional passages in which, addressing himself to the practical needs of his hearers, he put before them the claims and conditions of the higher life with a pregnant simplicity and rugged beauty of phrase. Conceits, selfishness, vice, how, as he spoke of them, they seemed to wither from his presence, how the pitiful, earthy self, with its passions and its cravings, sank into nothingness beside the great ideas and the great causes for which, as Christians and as men, he claimed their devotion. To the boy sitting among the crowd at the back of the room, his face supported in his hands and his gleaming eyes fixed on the speaker, 
It seemed as if all the poetry and history through which a restless curiosity and ideality had carried him so far took a new meaning from this experience. It was by men like this that the moral progress of the world had been shaped and inspired. He felt brought nearer to the great primal forces breathing through the divine workshop, and in place of natural disposition and reverent compliance, there sprang up in him suddenly an actual burning certainty of belief. "'Axioms are not axioms,' said poor Keats, "'till they have been proved upon our pulses.' And the old familiar figure of the divine combat, of the struggle in which man and God are one, was proved once more upon a human pulse on that May night, in the hush of that quiet lecture-room. As the little moving crowd of men dispersed over the main quadrangle to their respective staircases, Langham and Robert stood together a moment in the windy darkness, lit by the occasional glimmering of a cloudy moon. "'Thank you, thank you, sir,' said the lad, eager and yet afraid to speak, lest he should break the spell of memory. "'I should be sorry indeed to have missed that.' "'Yes, it was fine, extraordinarily fine. The best he has ever given, I think. Good night.' and Langham turned away, his head sunk on his breast, his hands behind him. Robert went to his room, conscious of a momentary check of feeling. But it soon passed, and he sat up late, thinking of the sermon, or pouring out in a letter to his mother, the new hero-worship of which his mind was full. A few days later, as it happened, came an invitation to the junior exhibitioner to spend an evening at Mr. Gray's house. Ellesmere went in a state of curious eagerness and trepidation, and came away with a number of fresh impressions which, when he put them into order, did but quicken his new-born sense of devotion. The quiet, unpretending house, with its exquisite neatness and its abundance of books, the family life, with the heart-happiness underneath, and the gentle trust and courtesy on the surface, the little touches of austerity which portrayed themselves here and there in the household ways, all these surroundings stole into the lad's imagination, touched in him responsive fibres of taste and feeling. But there was some surprise, too, mingled with the charm. He came, still shaken, as it were, by the power of the sermon, expecting to see in the preacher of it the outward and visible signs of a leadership, which, as he already knew, was a great force in Oxford life. His mood was that of the disciple only eager to be enrolled, and what he found was a quiet, friendly host, surrounded by a group of men talking the ordinary pleasant Oxford chit-chat, the river, the schools, the union, the football matches, and so on. Every now and then, as Ellesmere stood at the edge of the circle listening, the rugged face in the centre of it would break into a smile, or some boyish speaker would elicit the low spontaneous laugh, in which there was such a sound of human fellowship, such a genuine note of self-forgetfulness. Sometimes the conversation strayed into politics, and then Mr. Gray, an eager politician, would throw back his head and talk with more sparkle and rapidity, flashing occasionally into grim humour which seemed to throw light on the innate strength and pugnacity of the peasant and Puritan breed from which it sprang. Nothing could be more unlike the inspired philosopher, the mystic surrounded by an adoring school, whom Robert had been picturing to himself in his walk up to the house through the soft May twilight. It was not long before the tutor had learned to take much kindly notice of the ardent and yet modest exhibitioner, in whose future it was impossible not to feel a sympathetic interest. "'You will always find us on Sunday afternoons, before chapel,' he said to him one day, as they parted after watching a football match in the damp mists of the park, and the boy's flush of pleasure showed how much he valued the permission. 
For three years, those Sunday half-hours were the great charm of Robert Ellesmere's life. When he came to look back upon them, he could remember nothing very definite. A few interesting scraps of talk about books, a good deal of talk about politics, showing in the tutor a lively interest in the needs and training of that broadening democracy on which the future of England rests, a few graphic sayings about individuals, above all, a constant readiness on the host's part to listen, to sit quiet, with the slight unconscious look of fatigue which was so eloquent of a strenuous intellectual life, taking kindly heed of anything that sincerity, even a stupid awkward sincerity, had got to say. These were the sort of impressions they had left behind them, reinforced always indeed by the one continuous impression of a great soul speaking with difficulty and labour, but still clearly, still effectually, through an unblemished series of noble acts and efforts. Term after term passed away. Mrs. Ellesmere became more and more proud of her boy, and more and more assured that her years of intelligent devotion to him had won her his entire love and confidence, so long as they both should live. She came up to see him once or twice, making Langham almost flee the university, because she would be grateful to him in public, and attending the boat-races in festive attire, to which she had devoted the most anxious attention for Robert's sake, which made her, dear, good, impracticable soul, the observed of all observers. When she came, she and Robert talked all day, so far as lectures allowed, and most of the night, after their own eager, improvident fashion, and she soon gathered, with that solemn, half-tragic sense of change which besets a mother's heart at such a moment, that there were many new forces at work in her boy's mind, deep undercurrents of feeling, stirred in him by the Oxford influences, which must, before long, rise powerfully to the surface. He was passing from a bright, buoyant lad into a man, and a man of ardour and conviction, and the chief instrument in the transformation was Mr. Gray. Ellesmere got his first immoderations easily, but the final schools were a different matter. In the first days of his return to Oxford, in the October of his third year, while he was still making up his lecture list and taking a general oversight of the work demanded from him before plunging definitely into it, he was oppressed with a sense that the two years lying before him constituted a problem which would be harder to solve than any which had yet been set him. It seemed to him in a moment, which was one of some slackness and reaction, that he had been growing too fast. He had been making friends, besides, in far too many camps, and the thought, half attractive, half repellent, of all those midnight discussions over smouldering fires which Oxford was preparing for him, those fascinating moments of intellectual fence with minds as eager and as crude as his own, and all the delightful dipping into the very latest literature, which such moments encouraged and involved, seemed to convey a sort of warning to the boy's will that it was not equal to the situation. He was neither dull enough nor great enough for a striking Oxford success. How was he to prevent himself from attempting impossibilities and achieving a final mediocrity? He felt a dismal certainty that he should never be able to control the strayings of will and curiosity, now into this path, now into that, and a still stronger and genuine certainty that it is not by such digression that a man gets up the ethics or the annals. Langham watched him with a half-irritable attention. In spite of the paralysis of all natural ambitions in himself, he was illogically keen that Ellesmere should win the distinctions of the place. He, the most laborious, the most disinterested of scholars, turned himself almost into a crammer for Ellesmere's benefit. He abused the lad's multifarious reading, declared it was no better than dram-drinking, 
and even preached to him an ingenious variety of mechanical aids to memory and shortcuts to knowledge, till Robert would turn round upon him with some triumphant retort drawn from his own utterances at such sincerer and less discreet moment. In vain. Langham felt a dismal certainty before many weeks were over that Ellesmere would miss his first ingrates. He was too curious, too restless, too passionate about many things. Above all, he was beginning, in the tutor's opinion, to concern himself disastrously early with that most overwhelming and most brain-confusing of all human interests, the interest of religion. Gray had made him earnest with a vengeance. Elsmere was now attending Gray's philosophical lectures, following them with enthusiasm and making use of them, as so often happens, for the defence and fortification of views quite other than his teachers. The whole basis of Gray's thought was ardently idealistic and Hegelian. He had broken with the popular Christianity, but for him God, consciousness, duty were the only realities. None of the various forms of materialist thought escaped his challenge. No genuine utterance of the spiritual life of man but was sure of his sympathy. It was known that after having prepared himself for the Christian ministry, he had remained a layman because it had become impossible to him to accept miracle and it was evident that the commoner type of churchman regarded him as an antagonist, all the more dangerous because he was so sympathetic. But the negative and critical side of him was what in reality told least upon his pupils. He was reserved, he talked with difficulty, and his respect for the immaturity of the young lives near him was complete. So that when he sowed, others often reaped, or to quote the expression of a well-known rationalist about him, the Tories were always carrying off his honey to their hive. Elsmere, for instance, took in all that Gray had to give, drank in all the ideal fervour, the spiritual enthusiasm of the great tutor, and then, as Gray himself would have done some twenty years earlier, carried his religious passion, so stimulated, into the service of the great positive tradition around him. And at that particular moment in Oxford history, the passage from philosophic idealism to glad acquiescence in the receiving Christian system was a peculiarly easy one. It was the most natural thing in the world that a young man of Ellesmere's temperament should rally to the church. The place was passing through one of those periodical crises of reaction against an overdriven rationalism, which show themselves with tolerable regularity in any great centre of intellectual activity. It had begun to be recognised with a great burst of enthusiasm and astonishment that, after all, Mill and Herbert Spencer had not said the last word on all things in heaven and earth. And now there was exaggerated recoil. A fresh wave of religious romanticism was fast gathering strength. The spirit of Newman had reappeared in the place which Newman had loved and left. Religion was becoming once more popular among the most trivial souls, and a deep reality among a large proportion of the nobler ones. With this movement of opinion, Robert had very soon found himself in close and sympathetic contact. The meagre impression left upon his boyhood by the somewhat grotesque succession of the hardened curates and by his mother's shaft of wits at their expense, was soon driven out of him by the stateliness and comely beauty of the church order as it was revealed to him at Oxford. The religious air, the solemn beauty of the place itself, its innumerable associations with an organised and venerable faith, the great public functions and expressions of that faith, possessed the boy's imagination more and more. As he sat in the undergraduate's gallery at St. Mary's on the Sundays, when the great high-church preacher of the moment occupied the pulpit, 
and looked down on the crowded building, full of grave, black-gowned figures, and framed in one continuous belt of closely-packed boyish faces. As he listened to the preacher's vibrating voice, rising and falling with the orator's instinct for musical effect, or as he stood up with the great surrounding body of undergraduates to send the melody of some Latin hymn rolling into the far recesses of the choir, the sight and the experience touched his inmost feeling, and satisfied all the poetical and dramatic instincts of a passionate nature. The system behind the sight took stronger and stronger hold upon him. He began to wish ardently and continuously to become a part of it, to cast in his lot definitely with it. One May evening he was wandering by himself along the towing-path which skirts the upper river, a prey to many thoughts, to forebodings about the schools which were to begin in three weeks, and to speculations as to how his mother would take the news of the second class, which he himself felt to be inevitable. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, there flashed into his mind the little conversation with his mother which had taken place nearly four years before in the garden of Trinity. He remembered the antagonism which the idea of a clerical life for him had raised in both of them, and a smile at his own ignorance and his mother's prejudice passed over his quick young face. He sat down on the grassy bank, a mass of reeds at his feet, the shadows of the poplars behind him lying across the still river, and opposite the wide green expanse of the great town meadow, dotted with white patches of geese and herds of grazing horses. There, with a sense of something solemn and critical passing over him, he began to dream out his future life. And when he rose half an hour afterwards, and turned his steps homewards, he knew with an inward tremor of heart that the next great steps of the way was practically taken. For there, by the gliding river, and in view of the distant Oxford spars, which his fancy took to witness the act, he had vowed himself in prayer and self-abasement to the ministry of the church. During the three weeks that followed he made some frantic efforts to make up lost ground. He had not been idle for a single day, but he had been unwise, an intellectual spendthrift, living in a continuous succession of enthusiasms, and now at the critical moment his stock of nerve and energy was at a low ebb. He went in depressed and tired, his friends watching anxiously for the result. On the day of the logic paper, as he emerged into the school's quadrangle, he felt his arm caught by Mr. Gray. "'Come with me for a walk, Elsmere. You look as if some air would do you good.' Robert acquiesced and the two men turned into the passageway leading out onto Radcliffe Square. "'I have done for myself, sir,' said the youth with a sigh, half impatience, half depression. "'It seems to me to-day that I had neither mind nor memory. If I get a second I shall be lucky.' "'Oh, you will get your second whatever happens,' said Mr. Gray quietly. "'And you must be too cast down about it if you don't get your first. This implied acceptance of his partial defeat— coming from another's lips, struck the excitable Robert like a lash. It was only what he had been saying to himself, but in the most pessimist forecasts we make for ourselves there is always an under-protest of hope. "'I've been wasting my time here lately,' he said, hurriedly raising his college cap from his brows as if it oppressed them, and pushing his hair back with a weary, restless gesture. "'No,' said Mr. Gray, turning his kind, frank eyes upon him, as far as general training goes, you have not wasted your time at all. There are many clever men who don't get a first class, and yet it is good for them to be here, 
so long as they are not loungers and idlers, of course. And you've not been a lounger. You've been headstrong, and a little overconfident, perhaps. The speaker's smile took all the sting out of the words. But you have grown into a man, and you are fit now for man's work. Don't let yourself be depressed, Elsmere. You will do better in life than you have done in examination. The young man was deeply touched. This tone of personal comment and admonition was very rare with Mr. Gray. He felt a sudden consciousness of a shared burden which was infinitely soothing, and though he made no answer, his face lost something of its harassed look as the two walked on together down Oriel Street and into Merton Meadows. "'Have you any immediate plans?' said Mr. Gray, as they turned into the broad walk, now in the full leafage of June, and rustling under a brisk western wind blowing from the river. "'No, at least I suppose it will be no good my trying for a fellowship. But I meant to tell you, sir, of one thing. I have made up my mind to take orders.' "'You have? When?' "'Quite lately. So that fixes me, I suppose, to come back for divinity lectures in the autumn.' Mr. Gray said nothing for a while and they strolled in and out of the great shadows thrown by the elms across their path. "'You feel no difficulties on the way?' he asked at last, with a certain quick brusqueness of manner. "'No,' said Robert eagerly. "'I never had any. "'Perhaps,' he added with a sudden humility, "'it is because I have never gone deep enough. "'What I believe might have been worth more if I had more struggle. "'But it has all seemed so plain.' The young voice, speaking with hesitation and reserve, and yet with a deep inner conviction, was pleasant to hear. Mr. Gray turned towards it, and the great eyes under the furrowed brow had a peculiar gentleness of expression. "'You will probably be very happy in the life,' he said. "'The Church wants men of your sort.' But through all the sympathy of the tone, Robert was conscious of a veil between them. He knew, of course, pretty much what it was, and with a sudden impulse he felt that he would have given worlds to break through it and talk frankly with this man, whom he revered beyond all others, wide as was the intellectual difference between them. But the tutor's reticence, and the younger man's respect, prevented it. When the unlucky second class was actually proclaimed to the world, Langham took it to his heart perhaps more than either Ellesmere or his mother. No one knew better than he what Ellesmere's gifts were, it was absurd that he should not have made more of them in sight of the public. Le clericalisme, voilà l'ennemi, was about the gist of Langham's mood during the days that followed on the class list. Elsmere, however, did not divulge his intention of taking orders to him till ten days afterwards, when he carried off Langham to stay at Harden, and he and his old tutor were smoking in his mother's little garden one moonlit night. When he had finished his statement, Langham stood still a moment, watching the wreaths of smoke as they curled and vanished. The curious interest in Elsmere's career, which during a certain number of months had made him almost practical, almost energetic, had disappeared. He was his own languid, paradoxical self. "'Well, after all,' he said at last, very slowly, "'the difficulty lies in preaching anything. One may as well preach a respectable mythology as anything else.' "'What do you mean by a mythology?' cried Robert hotly. "'Simply ideas, or experiences, personified,' said Langham, puffing away. "'I take it they are the subject matter of all theologies.' "'I don't understand you,' said Robert, flushing. "'To the Christian, facts have been the medium by which ideas the world could not otherwise have come at have been communicated to man. 
Christian theology is a system of ideas, indeed, but of ideas realised, made manifest in facts. Langham looked at him for a moment, undecided. Then that suppressed irritation we have already spoken of broke through. "'How do you know they are facts?' he said dryly. The younger man took up the challenge with all his natural eagerness, and the conversation resolved itself into a discussion of Christian evidences. Or rather, Robert held forth, and Langham kept him going by an occasional remark which acted like the prick of a spur. The tutor's psychological curiosity was soon satisfied. He declared to himself that the intellect had precious little to do with Ellesmere's Christianity. He got hold of all the stock apologetic arguments, and used them, his companion admitted, with ability and ingenuity, but they were merely the outworks of the citadel. The inmost fortress was held by something wholly distinct from intellectual conviction, by moral passion, by love, by feeling, by that mysticism, in short, which no healthy youth should be without. "'He imagines he has satisfied his intellect,' was the inward comment of one of the most melancholy of sceptics, and he has never so much as exerted it. What a brute I am to protest!' And suddenly Langham threw up the sponge. He held out his hand to his companion, a momentary gleam of tenderness in his black eyes, such as on one or two critical occasions before had disarmed the impetuous Ellesmere. "'No use to discuss it further. You have a strong case, of course, and you have put it well. Only, when you are pegging away at reforming and enlightening the world, don't trample too much on the people who have more than enough to do to enlighten themselves.' As to Mrs. Ellesmere, in this new turn of her son's fortunes. She realised, with humorous distinctness, that for some years past Robert had been extricating her as well as himself. Her old rebellious sense of something inherently absurd in the clerical status had been gradually slain in her by her long contact through him with the finer and more imposing aspects of church life. She was still on light skirmishing terms with the hardened curates, and at times she would flame out into the wildest, wittiest threats and jibes, for the momentary satisfaction of her own essentially lay instincts. But at bottom she knew perfectly well that, when the moment came, no mother could be more loyal, more easily imposed upon, than she would be. "'I suppose, then, Robert, we shall be back at Muirwell before very long,' she said to him one morning abruptly, studying him the while out of her small twinkling eyes. What dignity there was already in the young, lightly-built frame! What frankness and character in the irregular, attractive face! "'Mother!' cried Elsmere indignantly. "'What do you take me for? Do you imagine that I am going to bury myself in the country at five or six-and-twenty, take six hundred a year and nothing to do for it? That would be a deserter's act, indeed!' Mrs. Elsmere shrugged her shoulders. Oh, "'I suppose you would insist on killing yourself, to begin with?' To most people nowadays that seems to be the necessary preliminary of a useful career." Robert laughed and kissed her, but her question had stirred him so much that he sat down that very evening to write to his cousin Mowbray Ellesmere. He announced to him that he was about to read for orders, and at the same time he relinquished all claim on the living of Muirwell. "'Do what you like with it when it falls vacant,' he wrote, "'without reference to me. My views are strong, that before a clergyman in health and strength, and in no immediate want of money, allows himself the luxury of a country parish, he is bound, for some years at any rate, to meet the challenge of evil and poverty where the fight is hardest, among our English town population. 
Sir Mowbray Ellesmere replied curtly in a day or two to the effect that Robert's letter seemed to him superfluous. He, Sir Mowbray, had nothing to do with his cousin's views. When the living was vacant, the present holder, however, was uncommon tough and did not mean dying, he should follow out the instruction of his father's will, and if Robert did not want the thing, he could say so. In the autumn, Robert and his mother went back to Oxford. The following spring he redeemed his Oxford reputation completely by winning a fellowship at Merton after a brilliant fight with some of the best men of his year, and in June he was ordained. In the summer term some teaching work was offered him at Merton, and, by Mr. Gray's advice, he accepted it, thus postponing for a while that London curiously and that stout grapple with human need at its sorest for which his soul was pining. "'Stay here a year or two, Gray said bluntly. You are at the beginning of your best learning time, and you are not one of the natures we can do without books. You'll be all the better worth having afterwards, and there is no lack of work here for a man's moral energies." Langham took the same line, and Ellesmere submitted. Three happy and fruitful years followed. The young lecturer developed an amazing power of work. That concentration which he had been unable to achieve for himself, his will was strong enough to maintain when it was a question of meeting the demands of a college class in which he was deeply interested. He became a stimulating and successful teacher, and one of the most popular of men. His passionate sense of responsibility towards his pupils made him load himself with burdens to which he was constantly physically unequal, and fill the vacations almost as full as the terms. And as he was comparatively a man of means, his generous, impetuous temper was able to gratify himself in ways that would have been impossible to others. The story of his summer reading parties, for instance, if one could have unravelled it, would have been found to be one long string of acts of kindness towards men poorer and duller than himself. At the same time he formed close and eager relations with the heads of the religious party in Oxford. His mother's evangelical training of him and Mr. Gray's influence, together perhaps with certain drifts of temperament, prevented him from becoming a high churchman. The sacramental ceremonial view of the church never took hold upon him. But to the English church as a great national institution for the promotion of God's work on earth, no one could have been more deeply loyal, and none coming close to him could mistake the fervour and passion of his Christian feeling. At the same time he did not know what rancour or bitterness meant, so that men of all shades of Christian belief reckoned a friend in him, and he went through life surrounded by an unusual, perhaps a dangerous, amount of liking and affection. He threw himself ardently into the charitable work of Oxford, now helping a high church vicar, and now toiling with Gray and one or two other liberal fellows at the maintenance of a coffee-palace and lecture-room just started by them in one of the suburbs. While in the second year of his lectureship, the success of some first attempts at preaching fixed the attention of the religious leaders upon him as upon a man certain to make his mark. So the three years passed. Years not perhaps of great intellectual advance, for other forces in him than those of the intellect were mainly to the fore, but years certainly of continuous growth in character and moral experience. And at the end of them, Mowbray Ellesmere made his offer, and it was accepted. The secret of it was, of course, overwork. Mrs. Ellesmere, from this little house in Merton Street, where she had established herself, had watched her boy's meteoric career through these crowded months with very frequent misgivings. 
No one knew better than she that Robert was constitutionally not of the toughest fibre, and she realised long before he did that the Oxford life, as he was bent on leading it, must end for him in premature breakdown. But, as always happens, neither her remonstrances, nor Mr. Gray's common sense, nor Langham's fidgety protests had any effect on the young enthusiast to whom self-slaughter came so easy. During the latter half of his third year of teaching, he was continually being sent away by the doctors, and coming back only to break down again. At last, in the January of his fourth year, the collapse became so decided that he consented, bribed by the prospect of the Holy Land, to go away for three months to Egypt and the East, accompanied by his mother and a college friend. Just before their departure, news reached him of the death of the rector of Muirwell, followed by a formal offer of the living from Sir Mowbray. At the moment when the letter arrived, he was feeling desperately tired and ill, and in afterlife he never forgot the half-superstitious thrill and deep sense of depression with which he received it. For within him was a slowly emerging, despairing conviction that he was indeed physically unequal to the claims of his Oxford work, and if so, still more unequal to grappling with the hardest pastoral labour and the worst forms of English poverty. And the coincidence of the Muirwell incumbent's death struck his sensitive mind as a divine leading. But it was a painful defeat. He took the letter to Gray, and Gray strongly advised him to accept. "'You overdrive your scruples, Earlsmere,' said the liberal tutor with emphasis. "'No one can say a living with twelve hundred souls, and no curate is a, a sinecure. As for hard time-work, it is absurd. You couldn't stand it. And after all, I imagine there are some souls worth saving out of towns.' Elsmere pointed out vindictively that family livings were a corrupt and indefensible institution. Mr. Gray replied calmly that they probably were, but that that fact did not affect, so far as he could see, Elsmere's competence to fulfil all the duties of rector of Muirwell. "'After all, my dear fellow,' he said, a smile breaking over his strong expressive face, "'it is well even for reformers to be sane.' Mrs. Elsmere was passive. It seemed to her that she had foreseen it all along. She was miserable about his health, but she too had a moment of superstition, and would not urge him. Muirwell was no name of happy omen to her. She had passed the darkest hours of her life there. In the end Robert asked for delay, which was grudgingly granted him. Then he and his mother and friend fled overseas, he feverishly determined to get well and cheat the fates. But after a halcyon time in Palestine and Constantinople, a whiff of poisoned air at Cannes on their way home, acting on a low constitutional state, settled matters. Robert was laid up for weeks with malarious fever, and when he struggled out again into the hot Riviera sunshine, it was clear to himself and everybody else that he must do what he could, and not what he would, in the Christian vineyard. Mother, he said one day, suddenly looking up at her, she sat near him working. "'Can you be happy at Muriel?' There was a wistfulness in the long, thin face, and a pathetic accent of surrender in the voice, which hurt the mother's heart. "'I can be happy wherever you are,' she said, laying her brown and nervous hand on his blanched one. "'Then give me pen and paper, and let me write to Mowbray. "'I wonder whether the place has changed at all.' 
Hey-ho, I always want to preach to people who have stuffed you up with gooseberries, or swung you on gates, or lifted you over puddles to save your petticoats. I wonder what has become of that boy whom I hit in the eye with my bow and arrow, or of that other lout who pummeled me into the middle of next week for disturbing his bird-trap. By the way, is the squire, is Roger Wendover, living at the hall now? He turned to his mother with a sudden start of interest. "'So I hear,' said Mrs. Ellsmere dryly. "'He won't be much good to you.' He sat on, meditating, while she went for pen and paper. He had forgotten the squire of Muirwell. But Roger Wendover, the famous and eccentric owner of Muirwell Hall, hermit and scholar, possessed of one of the most magnificent libraries in England, and author of books which had carried a revolutionary shock into the heart of English society, was not a figure to be overlooked by any rector of Muirwell, least of all by one possessed of Robert's culture and imagination. The young man ransacked his memory on the subject with a sudden access of interest in his new home that was to be. Six weeks later they were in England, and Robert, now convalescent, had accepted an invitation to spend a month in Long Window with his mother's cousins, the Thornburgs, who offered him quiet and bracing air. He was to enter on his duties at Muirwell in July, the bishop, who had been made aware of his Oxford reputation, welcoming the new recruit to the diocese with marked warmth of manner. End of Book One Chapter Five